This is Medieval Death Trip for Wednesday, August 8th, 2018. Episode 54, Concerning Quicksand, Crusaders, and a Journey Underground. Hello and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the podcast where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane. For the month of August, we're coming back from vacation in order to go on vacation with some of our authors. That is, we're going to look at some medieval travelers describing moments from their journeys. We'll even check in with a few of the writers who are cited in our new audiobook, Jordanus's Mirabilia Descripta, or Wonders of the East, which, as I announced last episode, you can get if you support us on Patreon at www.patreon.com mdtpodcast. I'll say a little bit more about Patreon and our first group of supporters at the end of the episode. Those other authors are going to take us off to faraway places. Well, far away from medieval Europe. But today, we're going to take a trip that's simultaneously less exotic and more exotic than anywhere our other travelers will lead us. We're hitching a ride with Gerald of Wales on a journey through his namesake country, but which just happens to include a little detour into the other world, or an other world, or maybe underworld, or unworld, or, well, we'll get there. In the spring of 1188, Baldwin, Archbishop of Canterbury, traveled from England into Wales with two missions in mind. One was to recruit for the Third Crusade by promising a remission of penance for sins to anyone who took the cross and went to fight in the Holy Land. This was done through a kind of preaching tour, with essentially rallies being held in each locality he passed through. The other part of this preaching tour was for the Archbishop to say Mass in four of the leading Welsh cathedrals and in doing so, to assert their subordination to Canterbury, an assertion that was not universally accepted. Accompanying Baldwin on this expedition was the Archdeacon of Brecon in Wales, a man who also served as a royal clerk in the court of Henry II, one Gerald, youngest son of William de Berry, known to us as Geraldus Cambrensis, or Gerald of Wales. Gerald's Welshness is a complicated question. It seems to have been an aspect of his identity that was continually in flux throughout his life. Genealogically, he was a quarter Welsh, his maternal grandmother being Nest, the daughter of King Rhys ap Tudor, ancestor of Henry Tudor, or Henry VII, first Tudor king of England. Nest married Gerald Fitzwalter, and their children became the dynasty of the so-called Geraldines, the House of Fitzgerald, which would go on to be a major player in Irish politics through the Norman conquest of Ireland which was happening during our Gerald's lifetime and being carried out by his kinsmen, a fact which colors his view on Celtic politics somewhat. Gerald's family were also, of course, marcher lords, the Norman families that held lands in and bordering Wales, or perhaps we should say Cambro-Norman families, since they often intermarried with the Welsh aristocracy, as we see with Gerald's grandparents. That said, while marcher identity was complex politically— their national loyalties were viewed with suspicion by both the Norman English and the Welsh, it seems fairly safe to say that, for Gerald at least, the culture within the family was quite strongly Norman. His native tongue was French, and his professional one was Latin. His actual knowledge of Welsh is a matter of some debate. As we'll see in the reading, he clearly knew some Welsh and was interested in it, but there's evidence which suggests he may not have been a fluent Welsh speaker 
and maybe barely even a Welsh speaker at all. It's quite possible that Gerald's relationship to Welsh was a bit like that of the sitcom stereotype of a Jewish New Yorker whose vocabulary is full of Yiddish words and phrases, but who couldn't really hold a full conversation in Yiddish. Much like one of our other Cambro-Norman writers, Walter Mapp, Gerald's career took him out of Wales. He circulated in cosmopolitan circles, as a student and lecturer at the University of Paris, and as a royal clerk for Henry II. Much of his writing in the earlier part of his career leans towards making the case for the marcher lords, both against the Welsh and sometimes against the English, who did not always give them their due. But in this, he primarily leans towards the Norman side. For someone known to history as of Wales, he displays a lot of anti-Welsh bias. He positions the Welsh, and even more so the Irish, as backward barbarians, untrustworthy primitives who are not only ungrateful for the gift of Norman civilization, but might be innately ungovernable. His later career is largely defined by his hitting a wall in his attempts at advancement. He tries and tries to be appointed bishop of the Diocese of St. David's, something of a lifelong dream for him, but is blocked. After this, his political outlook shifts, and he starts being much more critical of the Angevin kings, the ones who stymied his career, Henry II, Richard, and John, as we heard in the prefaces presented last episode. He even goes further and begins to take up the cause of the unjustly oppressed Welsh. If you're just reading bits of Gerald's writing here and there, this can give you whiplash. And that's not the only contradiction in his rhetoric. For example, he writes a great deal about the evils of nepotism in the church and the need for reform, but he himself received nearly all his own positions through family connections. Bishop David of St. David's, who will appear in today's text, appointed Gerald to that archdeaconry of Brecon, and just happened to be Gerald's uncle. Also, in his campaign to be given his late uncle's bishopric in the first decade of the 1200s, he sharply criticized the Archbishop of Canterbury and Canterbury's overweening influence over Welsh appointments, the influence he was helping Baldwin secure in 1188, and then, in those prefaces of 1214, we see him sucking up again to a new Archbishop of Canterbury. And he goes through yet another change after his bid at his bishopric is rather conclusively defeated. His Welsh nationalism fades away, and he becomes bitter and critical again, this time of pretty much all sides. Given some of the complexities, and indeed structural contradictions, of medieval society, it might be a bit harsh to label Gerald a hypocrite and an opportunist and maybe a not-very-likable person, but those labels aren't completely undeserved either. I think it's something many readers of Gerald wrestle with, because he is one of our writers who projects a lot of personality and wit and even thoughtfulness in his text. As a narrator, he can be very appealing, except perhaps when arguing for the wholesale deportation of all the Welsh out of Wales and the conversion of Wales into a royal game preserve. And yet, then you read about him being declared an enemy of the English crown for fomenting Welsh rebellion. He goes through these radical flips of insider-to-outsider status that wouldn't seem out of place in American politics today. Kind of like hearing a Republican president proclaiming that the Koch brothers are the enemies of the Republican Party. Something absurd like that. At this point, having read a bit more on Gerald's career, particularly from Robert Bartlett's book on Gerald, I do have to confess that my claims about his patronage goals in his two prefaces from last episode, uh, claims I did advise taking with a grain of salt, 
um, they need some modification, and maybe Gerald wasn't the best example for making my case. I do think my ideas of patrons being desirable as influencers rather than financiers has merit, especially for monkish authors. Gerald's career, like Walter Mapp's, is much more secular, much more tied to the royal court than to a stable ecclesiastical vocation. But even here, Gerald's contradictions continue, because he's a secular clerk frequently engaged in royal political business, who is nonetheless deeply committed to the church and writes tracts on church reform and views himself very much as a churchman among fellow churchmen. He's not the image of the secular clerk who's basically just a lawyer whose schooling happens to come with a bonus side of holy orders. And he did have a tidy and reliable income from his archdeaconry, so he's not a starving artist. But he is very clearly keen on promotion. He wants to be a bishop, and he's pursuing patrons who can help make that possible for him. So he is after a reward more than just literary fame. He's trying to deploy literary fame as a crowbar for prying open the doors to higher office. While a prolific writer and someone who clearly identifies as an author, he's not a retiring scholar who just wants to be allowed to continue writing his epic history or to pursue some point of theological debate. He's an author who's hoping to use authorship as a path to social and political status. So factor that in as a corrective to my case for how medieval literary patronage worked. And now, let's hear a bit from Gerald's account of his travels with Archbishop Baldwin. These were recorded in his Itinerarium Cambriae, or Journey Through Wales, written around 1191 and revised a few times in the following two decades. This, packaged together with a description of Wales, is the work to which Gerald attached the two prefaces we heard last episode in 1214. We'll be joining Gerald and Baldwin on the 14th day of their trip, presented in chapter 8 of book 1 of the Itinerarium. The translation is by Richard Colt Hoare for the Everyman's Library, with a handful of alterations for better readability, some of which are my own, and some of which I've borrowed from Lewis Thorpe's Penguin Classics translation. Continuing our journey, not far from Margan, where the alternate vicissitudes of a sandy shore and the tide commence, we forded over the river Avon, having been considerably delayed by the ebbing of the sea, and, under the guidance of Morgan, eldest son of Caradoc, proceeded along the seashore towards the river Neath, which, on account of its quicksands, is the most dangerous and inaccessible river in South Wales. A pack horse belonging to me, which had proceeded by the lower way near the sea, although in the midst of many others, was the only one which sunk down into the abyss. But he was at last, with great difficulty, extricated, and not without some damage done to the baggage and books. Yet, although we had Morgan, the prince of that country, as our conductor, 
We did not reach the river without great peril and some severe falls. For the alarm occasioned by this unusual kind of road made us hasten our steps over the quicksands, in opposition to the advice of our guide, and fear quickened our pace. Whereas, through these difficult passages, as we there learned, the mode of proceeding should be with moderate speed. But as the fords of that river experience a change by every monthly tide, and cannot be found after violent rains and floods, we did not attempt the ford, but passed the river in a boat, leaving the monastery of Neath on our right hand, approaching again to the district of St. David's, and leaving the diocese of Clandav, which we had entered at Abergavenny, behind us. It happened in our days that David II, Bishop of St. David's, passing this way and finding the ford agitated by a recent storm, a chaplain of those parts named Rotherk Falsus, or Redder the Liar, being conversant in the proper method of crossing these rivers, undertook, at the desire of the bishop, the dangerous task of trying the ford. Having mounted a large and powerful horse, which had been selected from the whole train for this purpose, he immediately crossed the ford, and fled with great rapidity to the neighboring woods, nor could he be induced to return until the suspension which he had lately incurred was removed, and a full promise of security and indemnity obtained. The horse was then restored to one party, and his service to the other. Entering the province called Gower, we spent the night at the castle of Swansea, which in Welsh is called Abertawe, or the fall of the river Tawe into the sea. The next morning, the people being assembled after mass, and many having been induced to take the cross, an aged man of that district, named Cador, thus addressed the archbishop. My lord, if I now enjoyed my former strength and the vigor of youth, no alms should ransom me, no desire of inactivity restrain me from engaging in the laudable undertaking you preach. But since my weak age and the injuries of time deprive me of this desirable benefit, for approaching years bring with them many comforts, which those that are past take away, if I cannot, owing to the infirmity of my body, attain a full merit, yet suffer me by giving a tenth of all I possess to attain a half. Then, falling down at the feet of the archbishop, he deposited in his hands, for the service of the cross, the tenth of his estate, weeping bitterly and entreating from him the remission of one half of the enjoined penance. After a short time, he returned, and thus continued, My lord, if the will directs the action, and is itself for the most part considered as the act, and as I have a full and firm inclination to undertake this journey, I request remission of the remaining part of the penance, and in addition to my former gift, I will equal the sum from the residue of my tenths. The archbishop, smiling at his devout ingenuity, embraced him with admiration. On the same night, two monks, who waited in the archbishop's chamber, conversing about the occurrences of their journey and the dangers of the road, one of them said, alluding to the wildness of the country, This is a hard province. The other, alluding to the quicksands, wittily replied, Yet yesterday it was found too soft.
A short time before our days, a circumstance worthy of note occurred in these parts, which Eliodorus, or Elidir, a priest, most strenuously affirmed had befallen himself. When a youth of twelve years, and learning his letters, since, as Solomon says, the root of learning is bitter, although the fruit is sweet, in order to avoid the discipline and frequent stripes inflicted on him by his preceptor, he ran away and concealed himself under the hollow bank of a river. After fasting in that situation for two days, two little men of pygmy stature appeared to him, saying, If you will come with us, we will lead you into a country full of delights and sports. Ascending and rising up, he followed his guides through a path, at first subterraneous and dark, into a most beautiful country, adorned with rivers and meadows, woods and plains, but obscure and not illuminated with the full light of the sun. All the days were cloudy, and the nights extremely dark, on account of the absence of the moon and stars. The boy was brought before the king, and introduced to him in the presence of the court, who, having examined him for a long time, delivered him to his son, who was then a boy. These men were of the smallest stature, but very well proportioned in their make. They were all of a fair complexion, with luxuriant hair falling over their shoulders like that of women. They had horses and greyhounds adapted to their size. They neither ate flesh nor fish, but lived on milk diet, made up into messes with saffron. They never took an oath, for they detested nothing so much as lies. As often as they returned from our upper hemisphere, they reprobated our ambition, infidelities, and inconstancies. They had no form of public worship, being strict lovers and reverers, as it seemed, of truth. The boy frequently returned to our hemisphere, sometimes by the way he had first gone, sometimes by another, at first in company with other persons and afterwards alone, and made himself known only to his mother, declaring to her the manners, nature, and state of that people. Being desired by her to bring a present of gold, with which that region abounded, he stole, while at play with the king's son, the golden ball with which he used to divert himself, and brought it to his mother in great haste, and when he reached the door of his father's house, but not unpursued, and was entering it in a great hurry, his foot stumbled on the threshold, and falling down into the room where his mother was sitting, the two pygmies seized the ball which had dropped from his hand, and departed, showing the boy every mark of contempt and derision. On recovering from his fall, confounded with shame and execrating the evil counsel of his mother, he returned by the usual track to the subterraneous road but found no appearance of any passage, though we searched for it on the banks of the river for nearly the space of a year. But since those calamities are often alleviated by time which reason cannot mitigate, and the length of time alone blunts the edge of our afflictions and puts an end to many evils, the youth, having been brought back by his friends and mother and restored to his right way of thinking and to his learning, in the process of time attained the rank of priesthood. Whenever David II, Bishop of St. David's, talked to him in his advanced state of life concerning this event, he could never relate the particulars without shedding tears. He had made himself acquainted with the language of that nation, the words of which in his younger days he used to recite, which, as the bishop often had informed me, were very conformable to the Greek idiom. When they asked for water, they said, Idor idorum, which meant bring water. For hudor, in their language, as well as in the Greek, signifies water, from whence vessels for water are called hudriai. 
and duver also in the Welsh language signifies water. When they wanted salt, they said halgain idorum, bring salt. Salt is called hals in Greek and halin in Welsh. For that language, from the length of time which the Britons, then called Trojans and afterwards Britons, from Brutus, their leader, remained in Greece after the destruction of Troy, became, in many instances, similar to the Greek. It is remarkable that so many languages should correspond in one word, hals in Greek, halin in British, and halgain in the Irish tongue, the G being inserted. Sal in Latin, because, as Priscian says, the S is placed in some words instead of an aspirate, as hals in Greek is called sal in Latin, hemi is semi, and hepta is septim. Cell in French, the A being changed into an E, salt in English by the addition of a T to the Latin, zout in the Teutonic language, Dutch. There are therefore seven or eight languages agreeing in this one word. If a scrupulous inquirer should ask my opinion of the story here inserted, I answer with Augustine that the divine miracles are to be admired, not discussed. Nor do I, by denial, place bounds to the divine power, nor, by assent, insolently extend what cannot be extended. But I always call to mind the saying of St. Jerome. You will find, says he, many things incredible and improbable which nevertheless are true. For nature cannot in any respect prevail against the Lord of nature. These things, therefore, and similar contingencies, I should place according to the opinion of Augustine, among those particulars which are neither to be affirmed nor to positively denied. So, there you have Gerald's trip to Swansea with a vision of a kingdom of little people. We'll talk about that in a bit, but before we get too far from the text, I want to share Lewis Thorpe's rendition of that final paragraph in which Gerald addresses the believability of this story of the underground world. Richard Colt Hoare's translation, which we heard, is more accurate to Gerald's Latin syntax, but I think Thorpe perhaps conveys the sentiment a little more clearly. He writes, if, careful reader, you should ask me if I think that this story of the little folk is really true, I can only answer with Augustine that miracles sent by heaven are there to be wondered at, not argued about or discussed. If I reject this, I place a limit on God's power, and that I will never do. If I say that I believe it, I have the audacity to move beyond the bounds of credibility, and that I will not do either. I call to mind what Jerome said when asked a similar question. You will find many things quite incredible and beyond the bounds of possibility which are true for all that. Nature never exceeds the limits set by God who created it. As Augustine implied, I would put this story and others of a similar nature, should the circumstance arise, among those which cannot be rejected out of hand, and yet which I cannot accept with any real conviction. Here we see Gerald expressing a kind of skepticism that comes up with some of our writers who deal in history and marvels. There are a few other places in the itinerarium where Gerald promotes a kind of naturalism that was emerging from the universities in his day. 
One of my favorite bits is a passage where he describes a lake that is said to have many supernatural properties, changing color and manifesting magical buildings and pastures, perhaps even another vision of fairyland. And this lake is known to make horrible noises. At the end of this list of marvels, Gerald writes, In the winter months, when it is covered with ice and when the surface is frozen over with a smooth and slippery coat, it emits a horrible groaning sound like the lowing of a vast herd of cattle all driven together in one place. It is possible, of course, that this is caused by the cracking of the ice and the sudden violent eruption of enclosed pockets of air through vents imperceptible to the eye. That's such a beautifully rational scientific hypothesis. And Gerald shows his affinity for this so-called new naturalism, a precursor of modern empiricism, by being interested in natural processes and natural causes of things, and he documents these in his writing. But this doesn't mean he doesn't also believe in the supernatural. Not at all. Even people untouched by the new naturalism not uncommonly display suspicion and skepticism of individual accounts of marvels and miracles and of things they have not witnessed themselves while having no doubts about the reality of the miraculous and the supernatural in general. You'll certainly find uh, especially this attitude of, I'm not sure I 100% believe this story, but here it is anyway, popping up in the writings of our other travelers. The Kingdom of the Little People is perhaps a bit of a special case, warranting some of this qualifying statement from Gerald about its veracity, just because it lies so much on the border between being a natural marvel and a paganistic belief. Are these little people just another unusual race, like the dog-headed men of the East? Or do they have the powers of spirits, which begins to edge them into an angelic or demonic nature that is not quite accommodated by orthodox theology? You start to run into some of the same problems writers had with ghosts and revenants, as we discussed in a previous episode. It's a potentially problematic marvel that Gerald might want to give himself a bit of flexibility around. At any rate, this story is notable as being one of the first written accounts of Welsh fairies. The, the word fairy is a touch anachronistic here and suggestive of a more precise mythology than Gerald would have experienced. It's here as the 12th century turns into the 13th that a lot of Celtic and British fairy lore begins to really make it into writing. Marie de France is contemporary with Gerald, and Arthurian courtly romance is blossoming as a genre at this same time. Gerald and a few other writers of marvels, including Walter Mapp, are significant for giving us a glimpse of a less courtly and more popular mode of fairy lore. And we see a lot of the common elements that remain in fairy lore today, such as the theft of magical items and people, especially children, disappearing into an underground world of feasting and dancing, among other things. One Welsh name for this magical otherworld is Anavan, the prefix an meaning either deep or below, so underworld or lower world, or the prefix might be one of negation, so the not world, the unworld. Gerald doesn't give this place a name, nor does he show any sign of taking it to be part of a common mythology. He presents it as if it's Eladir's own idiosyncratic tale. While it's full of recognizable folklore motifs, this narrow framing makes it hard to generalize from. It's not integrated into an account of a belief system. Gerald just delivers it to us as a story from the place they've arrived at. And yet, perhaps it's not as random a digression as it might initially seem. 
I came across a lovely dissertation from 2011 by Amelia Lynn Borrego Sargent that analyzes Gerald's revisions of his works and how they reshape the geographies that the books contain. She has a very nice discussion of the chapter we heard today, drawing attention to its structure. It's easy to read Gerald and feel like you're slipping into a kind of of stream-of-consciousness narration. The Journey Through Wales is a largely informational book. Its individual items are not that dissimilar from what you would find organized chronologically in a history, like that of William of Malmesbury. But because Gerald's organizing principle is the journey of Baldwin's delegation, we lose the clear chronology and get this more naturalistic-seeming flow of narrative. We encounter stories of things that happened at places as Gerald arrives there. The narration has a very personal quality, and Gerald is there as a character in his manuscript as well as being its narrator. It creates this interesting effect where the stories both feel like they occur to Gerald in a very natural way, and yet also feel a little random or incidental compared to a more rigorous history. But this, next we came to another place and here's what we saw and heard about approach, masks a more structured, and indeed conventional, approach that is maybe uh, not initially apparent. Each chapter of the itinerarium employs a fairly consistent pattern. You get a narrative of the delegation's travel, narrative of what happened when they arrived at the next stop, then usually some information about place names and political history, and lastly, the presentation of race notabilia, notable things, marvels associated with that place. Gerald manages the rhetorical transitions from section to section with a finesse that isn't trying to conceal this underlying schematic, but which keeps the changes of topic from feeling abrupt. We don't just have bits of narration dropped into three or four different boxes. He builds up connections and relationships between all of these items. A nice, rather subtle example that Sargent points out, uh, one I hadn't noticed while reading, is the repetition of imagery through the two narratives of the dangerous crossing. We have the tale of the archbishop's delegation navigating the quicksands and nearly losing a horse, Gerald's horse, And this reminds Gerald of an earlier event, when Bishop David got the disgraced local cleric Riddick to test the ford of the river, with an emphasis there put on another very fine horse that Riddick was given. A little bit of rhyming imagery, as they say. Both stories emphasize the danger faced by these two groups of religious travelers, and both emphasize the importance of proceeding cautiously. I think there might even be a further linking echo between the Bishop David story and the next narrative of Baldwin's delegation, which isn't mentioned by Sargent. Riddirk's river-crossing story and the story of the clever old man getting his crusader's remission of penance both involve someone striking a deal with a prelate, going away, and then coming back getting a better deal. You certainly could dismiss these as coincidental, But precisely this kind of repetition of elements is a major feature of medieval aesthetics and composition. It suggests that beneath Gerald's tone of, oh, and by the way, here's something else I happen to remember about this place, there lies a much more deliberate artistry. And Sargent's argument goes into his revisions and how he works to build in more layered resonances and significances as he comes back to his text at different points in his career. She also talks specifically about the Underground Kingdom incident, and from that discussion, I just wanted to pluck out this one passage from her work, which I think is a beautiful example of developing a literary critical metaphor. She writes, 
This tale quite literally plays out the idea that the delegation is journeying on only the surface of a landscape layered with narratives. Gerald transitions from his description of the present delegation and then, with the notabilia, reveals the narrative below the surface. Here, a kingdom which, insofar as fairyland is locatable, literally exists underground. One can imagine what a core sample of the narrative terrain contained in this chapter might look like. On top, the delegation's present journey across Quicksand and the River Neath, followed by a similarly identifiable layer of Bishop David's crossing somewhat in the past. Underneath that is Bishop David II's discussion with Eladir, and then Gerald, and at the bottom, the underground fairyland, full of narrative gold. The story's geographic proximity is periled again by thematic similarity. Though not quite as similar as the two crossing passages, the fairy tale reinforces the theme of uncertain terrain. Like the quicksand that swallows Gerald's books, the fairyland represents, metaphorically, a space below the surface, a space from which only linguistic fragments, the Greek-sounding words, remain. That's a great paragraph. And it also brings us to Gerald's linguistic interests, which I can't help but give a little attention to. E.A. Freeman, in 1876, called Gerald the father of comparative philology, which is perhaps a bit of an overstatement. Uh, But an article by Cornelius E. Coulter and F.P. Magoon Jr. highlights some of Gerald's linguistic achievements. His identification of cognates is not 100% in the linguistic discussions he has in his work, but it is surprisingly good, especially in the examples from this particular passage. He's wrong about the words for water— and falls prey to the legendary histories that linked Britain to the Trojan War, but he's right about the various forms of salt and about the numbers. Concerning these, Coulter and Magoon state, quote, He is on absolutely firm ground and is anticipating the discoveries of 19th century philologists. Coulter and Magoon also note how Gerald's linguistic acumen stands out especially against the standards of his age. They cite a number of amusing examples of medieval Latin misreadings committed by clergymen, uh, which were pointed out by Gerald himself. These echo the modern trope of misheard lyrics, or mondegreens. So you get an example like the phrase, Dominus his opus habit, or the Lord has need of them, which Gerald observes one cleric mistaking as Dominus his opus habit, or the Lord has his hyssop, hyssop being a shrub often made into tea. One is reminded of things like, excuse me while I kiss this guy, or we built this city on sausage rolls. We heard last time in Gerald's prefaces his complaint about the decline of appreciation for fine Latin composition, and he repeats that complaint multiple times elsewhere, decrying the flawed Latin of many of his fellow clergy, even esteemed bishops and archbishops. In his criticisms, you do get the impression that he's the kind of person who today would have an aneurysm if he heard someone say, all intensive purposes, or saw someone writing would of instead of would have, or the proper contraction would have. And since we're on the topic, let's just wrap up with a couple of notes about Gerald's language. I already mentioned how he doesn't give a specific name to the strange underground kingdom that Eladir visited, and he's similarly vague about how he terms the people who live there. In the first mention, he says Eladir saw homunculi duo, staturae quasi pygmaei, two little men of pygmy stature. And in the scene where the two little men take back the golden ball, he calls them duo pygmaei. So we have 
homunculi and pygmies. Homunculus is diminutive of homo, a person, so a little person. Later on in the alchemical tradition, it takes on this more specific idea of an artificially created person. Pygmy comes from Greek as the name for a short-statured people who were said to live along the Nile, as referenced in the Iliad, and as appear in descriptions of Africa and the East by later classical geographers. The name is thought to come from pugnos, a word for fist, whose Latin cognate gives us English pugilist and pugnacious, um, but that word also refers to a unit of measurement, similar to the cubit, a length from the fist to the elbow. And that relates, of course, to the alleged height of these people. The African bush tribes who have been called pygmies in modern times were given that name by Europeans in allusion to classical myth and are geographically unlikely to be direct inspirations for the ancient legend. To my knowledge, there wasn't really a term for fairy in the Latin of Gerald's day. Nymph and dryad are in there, but those don't seem quite synonymous. Perhaps Gerald is simply talking around a Welsh term and is choosing not to share it for some reason. There is a Welsh term for the little folk, Telwith Teg, uh, which we find attested in Welsh language manuscripts from a bit later on, and that's among other terms that might have been available to him. It could also be that Gerald doesn't perceive Eladir's tale as something fitting into a larger systematic folklore. Or maybe he just doesn't want to look like he's aware of a broader cultural belief that could run him into problems in terms of orthodoxy. I'll conclude by jumping back to the beginning of the story with a simpler bit of etymological trivia. I was curious to see what Gerald's Latin for quicksand was. Turns out, it's wee-wee or vivi sabuli periculus, or dangerous living sand, which highlights where quicksand comes from. The quick in quicksand means alive, as in the quick and the dead. It's not quicksand because it sucks you down real fast. I mean, if Hollywood has taught us anything... It's that quicksand is excruciatingly slow. And no, I'm not going to play a particular clip from The NeverEnding Story because I don't need to resurrect anyone's childhood trauma. Instead, I'll proceed directly to our mystery word, which I posted up on Twitter a few days ago. Our word for this episode is Pac-Man. P-A-C-M-A-N. Or variantly, M-O-N. This is a word I found in the Dictionary of the Welsh Language, but it's a bit of a stretch to call it a Welsh word per se. It's a word in Welsh, but it's a borrowing into Welsh from English. And the English word is Pac-Man, P-A-C-K-M-A-N, which, uh, as is a bit more obvious, means a peddler, one who travels with a pack on his back. Where English gets pack from is more mysterious. It doesn't appear in Old English. Forms of pack with the same meaning appear in Middle Dutch and Middle Low German sources in the 1200s, which are the earliest known attestations of it. But the word starts to appear in English sources not long after, so it's hard to say if Middle English borrowed it from the Low Countries or if the Low Countries borrowed it from English. Its earliest uses are associated with the wool trade, which certainly involved producers and merchants on both sides of the channel. The first meanings are about closely bound bundles, things packed together, and the verb to pack comes out of the noun. The sense we have in the phrases a pack of cards or a pack of wolves emerges by extension. 
Out of curiosity, I looked to see if Old English had a word for pack of wolves, and I couldn't find one, at least not in wolf-related citations in the Bosworth Taller Dictionary. If any of you out there know of an Old English passage that provides a term for a group of wolves, I'd be interested to know what gets used, and if it suggests anything about how much Anglo-Saxons even had a conception of a wolf pack as a coherent animal community. Uh, or if they just saw wolves as a danger encountered out in the wilderness, sometimes singly, sometimes in groups, but without any particular zoological awareness of the pack as a social unit. Anyway, pack, P-A-C, makes it into Welsh and Irish by the 14th century, so I'm letting that qualify as a medieval Welsh word. Pac-Man is not specifically attested in medieval Welsh sources, but its English cousin does go back that far, and is even a medieval vocational surname in England, but either with the CK or without the C and just the K. But still, you know what that means. There's very probably a medieval text somewhere, maybe a parish register or something, that contains Ms. Pac-Man. Maybe Pac-Man isn't a bona fide medieval mystery word, but the moment I spotted it while browsing the Dictionary of the Welsh Language, I knew it had to be our word for this episode. We've had a lot of commentary already in this episode, so I'll keep my promised Patreon remarks brief. I've been blown away by the number of people who signed up to be patrons in the first week, and I want to thank the 26 of you who have become supporters as of the time I'm recording this. You're providing enough to cover my primary recurring technical expenses, uh, namely web hosting and the subscription fees I pay for the software that I use to make the show with. And that's really important. It helps me be able to keep the show humming along. But I certainly would welcome more support, which would allow for not just covering baseline cost, but allowing some upgrades and improvements. If you want to join alongside those who have already become patrons for either $1 or $5 a month, you can do so at www.patreon.com slash mdtpodcast. And if you're a patron, you'll receive access to the first in hopefully a series of audiobooks for patrons, the Mirabilia Descripta, or Wonders of the East, by Jordanus, as translated by Henry Yule. And as I mentioned, our next little set of travel texts we're going to get in upcoming episodes are all texts that Yule makes reference to in his footnotes on Jordanus. So if you want the full intertextual experience, you'll want to get your copy of Jordanus by sending us, say, a buck a month, or more as you see fit. Of course, everyone is invited to get more information about the show at our website, MedievalDeathTrip.com, or to reach out to me with comments, questions, or other feedback on Twitter, at MDTPodcast, or by emailing Patrick at MedievalDeathTrip.com. And Patreon supporters, you can send messages through Patreon as well. I'm aiming to be back in just a week or so with our first episode of Medieval Tourism to the East, so I will rendezvous with you then, and thanks for listening. <laughs>